now presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcasts? Is your favorite host, John Gabriel, on your favorite podcast, The King of Stuff. Going to, as usual, start with an interview of Kat Rosenfield, wonderful author, writer, and then on the other side, I will talk about very important issues such as the painful State of the Union. I was going to uh, edit this, record everything, and release it on Tuesday instead I'm doing it on Wednesday because I thought I should probably respond to Biden's speech and it was painful, but I'll get to all that at the end. Here is the far more important interview with Kat Rosenfield. Very happy to have Pat Rosenfield on. We're old buddies. We've known each other for years, which means we've uh, followed each other on Twitter for, I don't know, a few months at least, but a really great writer. And I need to ask her how she can possibly write this many books. Her latest one, which just came out last month, is called You Must Remember This. And she also writes for Unheard Reason. You can find her articles all over. She has a podcast Feminine Chaos podcast, so check that out as well. Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, why don't you tell us first about You Must Remember This, because um, just full disclosure, I've mentioned on this podcast before, my father dealt with dementia, and uh, I just thought the uh, the tease for this book was really smart. Oh, thank you. Um, So, yeah, you must remember this is a gothic mystery. It's my fifth book, um, my fourth that I've written solo, uh, my fifth, if you include the one that I collaborated on with Stan Lee. And uh, this is a book that takes place at Christmas time, 2014, on the windswept coast of Maine in Bar Harbor. A fractured family has gathered at their crumbling estate, which is called the Whispers, for what they think will be their matriarch's last Christmas. Her her name is Miriam Caravasios, and she does have dementia. She's 85 years old. So she's slipping away. And they expect that by next Christmas, she will be dead. When she dies, she's going to leave behind a $20 million fortune. So obviously, there is a desire there to, you know, on the part of her children, her three children, to get in good, uh, make My sure their inheritance did not is insured. Leave behind. $20 million, unfortunately. But uh, please. Oh, that's a shame, you know. <laughs> But um, so in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve, Miriam slips out of the house. She walks out onto the frozen bay. She falls to the ice and she dies. And it is a terrible accident. Or was it? And that's where the book kicks off. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just a great conceit to do that. Now, um, you've written so many books and... uh, First off, I, I like to ask authors this. What the heck is your writing process? Because it seems like, you know, I, I don't know. I've been dinking around with the book forever. And it just seems like every writer has kind of a different method for getting stuff done. So what's what's your process? Is it a daily thing for you? Have you ever seen that gif of the cat just slamming on a computer keyboard? Yeah. <laughs> That's what my writing process is. <laughs> Very well thought out and meticulous. Yeah, it's uh, and just when uh, the setting of a book is in Maine, I immediately think of Stephen King and how he was. Well, he had the aid of cocaine, let's say. But uh, yeah, he would just not leave his tiny little trailer snowbound in uh, the Maine wilderness. He wouldn't leave it until he knocked out, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 words. And uh, I get distracted very easily. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, Stephen King, for you know, the bulk of his career, was not writing with the temptation of social media at hand. Uh, I would, I, I feel like he's been a little bit less prolific since he got on Twitter. Although maybe I'm just imagining, maybe I'm projecting onto Stephen King. But um, you know, I, I do have a pretty full slate of projects. And I also teach yoga part-time, which um, is a way that I keep myself from just kind of going insane, rattling around in my head all day and getting extremely fat from inactivity. So um, my my writing schedule is very much positioned around, you know, if I'm home, I'm probably working. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you just have to, Unfortunately, um, yeah, I, I had a creative writing professor uh, way back when, when I was in college, uh, Ron Carlson, and I uh, wrote a lot of great short stories. But yeah, that was his whole thing. He's just like, writing is miserable. Put your butt in the chair while all your friends are out playing outside and you can hear them. <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, put your hands on the keyboard. Uh, don't mess around with anything else. Before that, actually, you had uh, partnered with Stan Lee, the legendary Stan Lee. Why don't you tell us about that work that you did with him? It was called The Trick of Light. Oh, sorry. Um, my my dog and my cat have taken this moment to decide that they want to uh, do war. So sorry yeah, about that noise. Yeah. We have the same dynamic here. Um, So Trick of Light was a a project that I was so lucky to be involved in. Uh, Back in 2017, it came to light that Stan was collaborating with a couple of producers, uh, Luke Lieberman and Ryan Silbert, to create an entirely new superhero universe. He wanted to do long form fiction. He wanted to to write a novel and he wanted to do it for uh, an audiobook exclusive. This was with Audible. And... As it turned out, writing a novel was basically the one form of storytelling that Stan had never done. And so he was looking for somebody who had experience in that space to collaborate with him. And at the time that my agent caught wind of this project and said, I think you should put yourself up for this. I was sort of flabbergasted because I, you know, I'm not really a comic book person. I mean, I enjoyed the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like any red-blooded American, (laughs) but um, I'm not, you know, a super geek. And so it was me in competition for this writing job with, um, I think, maybe four or five men, nerds, um, you know, guys who had written sci-fi, who had written comics, who had written like franchise fiction for the Star Wars universe or, uh, you know, things like that. And then there was me. I had written two young adult novels um, that were more literary, more centered on feelings and mysteries and, and you know, murder sometimes. But <laughs> nevertheless, I felt like a real fish out of water. And... What ended up happening was that they decided that they actually, between Stan and Luke and Ryan, they had enough nerd cred on this project and also enough testosterone. And so I became the guy. That's just awesome. Uh, What a great experience to work with him because, wow. Yeah, complete legend. I was never into comic books growing up. I, I really think that's discussed in the comments of the podcast, folks, but I really think that is an East coast thing. Uh, I went in the Navy right out of high school and I was hanging out with all these dudes from like upstate New York, Connecticut, New England in general. And they were, they knew everything about comic books. And it's like, I don't remember a single person that I grew up with being into it at all. 
But uh, even then, I knew who Stan Lee was. And of course, with all the Marvel Universe and all that, um, he got so famous. So that's amazing. It seems like anything he'd be associated with would uh, be very well received by his massive fan base. Yeah, it actually was. The audio book hit the New York Times bestseller list instantly, which was very exciting. And I think that uh, it's been pretty well loved by his fans and also by, you know, a whole new contingent of people who stumbled upon it because it's an audio book. And that's sort of the new hot medium right now. Right. Exactly. And something that um, you wrote about recently. Well, first off, let's talk about, because you've written a lot for reason. You've written for the great site unheard. Everybody check it out. If you haven't already and shame on you, if you haven't already, how did you get into um, kind of the libertarian space uh, writing about things? Because it seems like that must be a little bit different for a lot of authors. Yeah, this was not something that I planned on. <laughs> I really um, kind of fell backwards into it slash was shoved into it. Um, what happened was when I was a young adult fiction writer, I, I've always been a big kind of a free speech liberal. Right. And, um, you know, I, I value free expression. I, you know, I grew up in the, you know, uh, I mean, I came of age in the 90s, so I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the Republican Party wanted to ban everything that was fun. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I really, really value, um, you know, artists being able to create kind of unfettered uh, without interference. And so within the young adult fiction space, Starting in 2016, which is, you know, the time when a lot of people in very progressive political online spaces started to kind of lose their minds, um, there became there started to be this sort of obsession with policing the content of fiction um, and with trying to get books canceled for being quote unquote problematic, which meant that they ran afoul of this or that orthodoxy, this or that ism. And what I noticed happening in my own community of writers was that there were these petitions circulating authors very, very avidly trying to get each other's books canceled. And I just thought this was really bad. And I said so, not calling anybody out, not even mentioning the specific title, but the fact that I spoke up about this at all turned out to be either a terrible mistake or the best thing that ever happened to me, depending on your perspective. Um, I was summarily canceled by the young adult community. Um, I was, I don't want to really go into it because a lot of it is really convoluted drama, but yeah. um, it was ugly. It was at the time pretty devastating. And but also as a journalist, which I also was, what was happening to me was fascinating because it was like, nobody wants me to talk about this. And if a lot of people are screaming at you not to talk about something and you're a journalist, I think often the instinct is to be like, well, I want to talk about this more. What's going on here? Let's kick over that rock. Let's look under there. What's going on here? Something for sure. There's a story here. And so I ended up writing a reported piece about what was happening in young adult fiction. It was called The Toxic Drama of Wyatt Twitter. It was uh, printed in Vulture in uh, August of 2017. And that was my first piece in which I really kind of dipped a toe, well, more than a toe, but, um, you know, into this type of culture writing, um, you know, skirting the culture wars, trying to understand what was happening in progressive political spaces and, and social spaces that was leading to this incredible censorious impulse kind of across the board. 
And you wrote another piece for Reason um, late last year, I guess it was, all about, and this was a fascinating piece, all about sensitivity readers, which I've never heard that term before you wrote about it. Why don't you explain what sensitivity readers are and how they've changed the entire publishing industry? Sure. So sensitivity readers, uh, this is an example of something that started in young adult fiction and has now kind of wormed its way into the mainstream for better or for worse. If you are an author of a given identity category, like you're, say, a straight white male, and you want to write a book that contains characters who are not straight white men, a sensitivity reader is a consultant that you or your publisher hire to read your book and to make sure that you have rendered the characters who do not share your identity characteristics and background authentically. I am holding up my fingers, making like air quotes right now around the word authentically, because of course, the thing about sensitivity reading, the entire kind of concept of it is predicated on the idea that there's one authentic way to be a woman or a black person or a gay person or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, But nevertheless, this is a thing. This is a thing that now exists. And it really can vary, you know, some sensitivity readers will behave more in the manner of subject matter experts. You know, they may say, well, you know, it's like if you have a, a Muslim character sitting around drinking beer and eating pork, they'll say, well, that's not really right. Yeah. Um, others will, in fact, flag your book for anything that could be deemed offensive by the incredibly kind of constantly shifting puritanical standards of the extremely online left. And this is where things can get very dicey for authors because this is a way to kind of strip all the character out of the, out of a story, to strip all the excitement and drama out of it. Um, it can get to the point where you have uh, sensitivity readers basically objecting to the villain in a story doing or saying a bad thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's just uh, bizarre to think that uh, people, authors have to go through it because the entire point of creativity, you set forth, okay, here's going to be at least where I begin my plot and try to explore these characters. And I know in my meager writing, you know, short stories and the like, I never knew where the heck the uh, characters would go exactly. And usually what I would do to keep things interesting is have them do things that seemed questionable or inauthentic. Let's say, you know, yeah. um, A Muslim Mm -hmm. character, um, wiping out a six pack of beer and then the rest of the story and I'd figure out, okay, why did this guy do this? Uh, What's going on? Because uh, doing an odd action, it's like, okay, here's another mystery I need to kind of solve showing that people are a lot more complex than these, uh, I don't know, cartoon versions of uh, what we're supposed to think of people. They used to be called stereotyping. Uh, I guess stereotyping is not a problem anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, you know, in the the worst case scenario, taking to its logical conclusion, that is really what sensitivity reading kind of deals in is very crude stereotypes, um, very strict identitarianism. I'm not a fan. I don't use sensitivity readers for my books. If I'm writing about something um, that I'm, you know, like a culture or an environment or an activity that I'm not familiar with, then I do a lot of research. Um, But I would never consult one person to tell me how they think my characters should feel and think. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's tough for, you know, 
10 readers are going to have 10 different takes on that anyway. So why would you, um, I don't know, surrender your creativity to someone who's not that closely linked to the project you're working on? It's uh, mm-hmm. now what kind of effect has this had on the publishing world? I know more and more every year, more people are doing self-publishing. Um, is that one result or I'm sure great authors are just being canceled or marginalized right and left? Yeah, it's hard to say exactly. You know, it's, it's a hard thing to measure um, because, you know, there are, of course, books which are basically being tanked for failing the sensitivity reading process. Um, of course, if that happens to your book, you're unlikely to admit as much in public because it's right. tantamount to saying, I wrote a book that was too racist and sexist to publish, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Nobody wants to be that person, especially if they want to continue working. Um, the other thing, though, is that sensitivity reading kind of goes hand in hand with this really um fascinating, but I think kind of insidious creep of uh, this very strict strain of identitarianism into publishing, into the idea of, you know, how a book should be written, what kinds of stories can be told. So you have at this point, this kind of explicit, um, as you were saying, marginalization of authors who don't check, quote unquote, diverse boxes, which is to say, if you're a straight white man, and you are looking to get your book through the door at a publishing house and you go on, for instance, Twitter and you look at how agents and editors are speaking, you'll see a lot of, I don't even want to receive submissions from straight white men. Like, I'm so sick of stories by straight white men. Don't even bother querying me if you're a straight white man. I mean, some of this is perhaps hyperbolic. Some of it is just people posturing because that's how you get clout online. But I think it's, you know, it would be foolish to suggest that it doesn't have some kind of downstream effect where people who might have tried to write books or submit books are just saying, I'm not going to bother because they'll never get through the door. Yeah, Dostoevsky, sorry, you've been canceled. Not only are you a straight white male, you're a Russian, which is even worse. Yeah, double Um, canceled. (laughs) Another great article you wrote for Reason is about the the S word, spaz, and how Ah, people are freaking out over that. Now, when I was a kid, and granted, I'm like 98 years old. However, when I was a kid, well, let's just say I was... uh, very active in class and teachers mm-hmm. would alternately say stop being so hyper john or would you stop being a spaz this was <laughs> this was normal language and my family used it everybody used it and yeah i didn't really think anything of it so i was amazed when spaz became this dangerous ableist word that was freaking people out it's like yeah when i especially when i was a kid i still am kind of a spaz and, and, and that's I, I don't know why anybody would be offended about it. Um, so now you have this sensitivity issues going on uh, two extremes. And um, as a spaz American, I had no problem with this, but somebody protected me from these <laughs> lyrics. Um, now it's even well, I guess it has for a while affecting the music industry, which used to be all about rebellion. That's kind of the point of rock and much of hip hop. Um, so what's going on with that? Well, I think it's important to note that spaz is um, it's not offensive in the U.S., but it is offensive in the U.K. and Australia. Um, And this is, I think, a hazard of culture having become this kind of like global participation thing where, you know, people from all different cultural contexts are weighing in on 
music or art or books or what have you that are being created in one very specific cultural context. So what's interesting is the the spaz that you grew up with and which also I grew up with, where it was almost a term of endearment. It just described a person who was like behaving erratically. Um, This is not how the term is used in African-American vernacular English, where it means that you're about to fight somebody, like you're going to freak out. Um, And then across the pond, it's actually a very offensive slur, um, which, you know, I, I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around, but it, it is. Um, it is probably the closest anal, uh, excuse me, the closest analog that you have for spaz in the U.S. is something like retard, you know, where it's just right. it's a little bit shocking to hear it spoken aloud if you are in the U.K. Um, so basically what happened was that these activists, you know, in the UK, or I think the the one who really raised a stink was in Australia, discovered that Lizzo had used this word on her album and tweeted about it and was like, this isn't funny. Like, this is, you know, this is ableist slur language. You should do something about it. And Lizzo, interestingly, chose to capitulate to this person. And because she capitulated, I think basically now everybody kind of has to capitulate. You know, Beyonce, when she was called out for using the same word a few weeks later, um, also just rolled over immediately. Yeah, it's amazing to see. And I know you mentioned in the article as well, Black Eyed Peas, Let's Get It Started, which everybody's heard probably eight trillion times. It's It was Let's Get Retarded. And uh, that was deemed offensive. And what's weird about it and kind of frustrating to any kind of writer, um, anyone dealing with words is um, I think Steven Pinker called it the euphemism treadmill, where Mm -hmm. many years ago I worked in marketing, worked for um, a company that made software for the behavioral health space. Now, in this example, um, retarded was considered the polite way of saying that someone was crazy or insane or something like that. So we dealt with um, centers that were kind of government affiliated, if not completely funded. And you could tell when the state um, approved their system of uh, dealing with people with behavioral issues based on the terminology they had. When you were in um, dealing with New York ones, they called it mental hygiene, which was like the 1950s euphemism. Then Texas did it early 60s. And it was uh, Centers for Mental Health and Mental Retardation. And later on, now it's all behavioral health or something like that. But it's just weird because every one of these terms were the polite way to say of that era. And now all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, it's offensive. You can't say that anymore. I I think at some point, uh, people throughout the culture, instead of screaming, that's not funny, which is the new uh, shout of the tyrant, um, instead of that is just saying, why be offended, especially when someone obviously doesn't mean any kind of an insult to anybody with any kind of issues? I think every behavioral health issues are so widely defined. I think everybody is dealing with something, you know, they used to be just a personality mm-hmm. trait. I would if I was a kid today, I would just be walking around with an IV with riddle and drip or something like that because I was so ridiculous <laughs> over the top. Can but, I get one um, of those? <laughs> <laughs> but but now it's. Um, everybody's so bent on finding offense, even where none exists, that uh, they're just trying to censor everybody else. It, it's not protecting anyone. 
It's not. And, you know, what's interesting about the euphemism treadmill is that it's clearly predicated on the idea that if you can change the words people are using, you will change the way they feel. You'll change the way they behave. You'll change the world ultimately. But what actually happens is you pick a new euphemism to use for, for instance, a person who has mental retardation or whatever, what developmental disability, I guess, is the, is the name now. And five minutes later, some kid on the playground is going to be like, oh, what are you, developmentally disabled? You know, exactly. it, it automatically becomes a, a thing because the problem is not the words. It's not the language being used. It's that we fear difference and that children especially are cruel in this way. And so whatever the word is, they're going to make it a bad thing. And that's um, this is a problem of human nature that cannot be solved <laughs> by changing the language rules, no matter how much people might wish that it were otherwise. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, I'm sure people calling me spaz, it forced me to channel my ADHD, uh, undiagnosed, I might add, um, into something that works a little, that works with my personality when I got into, I don't know, later school, got into college, the workforce and things like that. It's like, okay, how do I channel this spazziness into something effective where it actually helps me in my job and sort of hinders me? And uh, yeah, everybody's different. And that's a good thing. You know, it, we have two daughters. They're a year and a half apart. Same parents, uh, same town. They even lived in the same house. Completely different. Totally different. Different mm. personalities, learning styles and things like that. It's, I don't know, but pointing out character um, differences, it, it just makes me think that people are awesome because we aren't all the same. Because who wants to be around everybody who's a carbon copy of yourself. Right. I mean, that's what that's true diversity, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I've always people have appealed to me the more different they are from me because I'm just like, oh, this guy's weird. <laughs> What's his deal? Mm -hmm. We end up becoming friends or I end up we end up hating each other. But still, it's that's how you learn being around different people and uh kind of uh, highlighting those differences and finding out, oh, wow, how, how do you deal with that? What makes you tick kind of a thing? And uh, help me learn a whole lot about uh, how to be successful in life, uh, seeing how other people um, often far smarter than me uh, dealt with these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is something it's a sort of a curiosity about other people that serves a, a person very well in life. Um, it served me well as a journalist. If I see somebody doing something that I find like baffling and distasteful, um, my instinct is really not to get judgmental about it and be kind of offended and affronted by it. It's to be like, explain this to me. Like, What's up with you? What? What are you doing? I, I want to understand this because it makes no sense to me, but it certainly makes sense to you. So, you know, what's your perspective? Yeah. And also, if you're a novelist, especially uh, understanding what makes people tick makes you a good writer because you can say, oh, that's why they're doing that. You know, it, mm -hmm. I think when people are trolling on Twitter or something, they're I don't take offense. I'm just kind of fascinated by why are you spending your time this way? Because you're obviously I can see from your profile picture, you're a 60 year old guy. What's going on in your life? <laughs> and uh, Why are you deeply offended that? I don't know. I have a slightly different uh, political view than you do on whatever issue I tend to be writing about. And uh, yeah, if you don't take offense, you can learn a whole lot more about people in life. 
Right. Well, I mean, that guy who you just mentioned, you know, the Twitter guy, he's not really looking to learn about anybody. He's looking to do something else. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Usually when I get attacked, the first thing I think of, why are you so insecure about this issue? I've never seen you comment about this issue. And there's some kind of insecurity going on here. And I want to analyze it a little too much and uh, not spaz out on him since that's no longer approved. Well, where can people find your work? I'm going to be including links to your books, but uh, let our listeners know where they can hear more about you. Sure. So you can find my books anywhere that you would buy a book. Sorry. Give me one second. Usually uh, Calvin the Wonder Beagle interrupts my podcast. So I'm glad uh, one of the dogs involved on one of the ends of this uh, phone line are uh, doing their work since uh, Calvin is just sawing logs over there. Lie down. Come on. Sorry. I have a very bad and big doodle here who's just, who's being a jerk. Um, So my books, my books can be found. (laughs) Thanks, Winston. My books can be found anywhere that you would buy a book. Um, and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Kat Rosenfield. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at Kat Rosenfield. And uh, yeah, you know, feel free to find me anywhere. Fantastic. Awesome dog. Um, dogs always make every interview better. So I appreciate uh, his involvement as well. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thanks to Kat for being on the program as a first time guest about the State of the Union. The problem with a Joe Biden speech is that he doesn't believe anything he says. He doesn't intend to follow up with anything. Obama was a lot like this. Uh, I used to call Obama the first postmodern president because if he said something, he thought that he could check something off the list. There, I fixed that. So you would have a school shooting and you'd say, you know what? We This is intolerable. We can't allow this anymore. And we need to pass legislation. I will sign it to ban all assault rifles. And then he'd move on to something else. I don't know, something about Obamacare, something in foreign relations, giving in to uh, the Syria, Syrian red line being crossed, etc. But he never did anything to uh, make his preferred policy happen, thankfully, I might add. But he just thought, if I comment on it, I'm done. And uh, that's kind of what Biden's shop is like. The speech was just all over the place. It didn't really, it tried to have a theme, but nothing really tied it together. He kept shouting, finish the job. We got to finish the job. I think a lot of people are watching that saying, "Uh, you've done enough. Thank you. I don't want you to finish the country. That's kind of how I interpreted it. But so the state of the union with someone like Biden doesn't mean a lot. You're kind of hoping he has enough energy and stamina to get through it. And that he doesn't need uh, text on the bottom of the screen telling you what he actually said because it was very hard to understand. He's had for a long time this mumble, whisper, scream kind of delivery style, which is just very jarring. It's very unappealing um, in a public speaker. And I know I said last night, this loud, quiet, loud thing, that's what the Pixies were famous for. It, it works in um, early 90s alternative music. Doesn't work with an 80-year-old politician as well. A lot of fumbling, a lot of mumbling, and it was very hard to make out a lot of the things he was saying. 
Um, people would uh, comment after, no, that's not what he said. He was saying this other thing. And uh, when you have Democrats doing that online, not a great sign. If people don't know what you're even saying before they can interpret the meeting afterwards. The problem with this not believing in what you're saying, when Ronald Reagan gave a speech, it was a big deal because when he said he hated the dirty commies, it was just like, yeah, his entire life, he's hated the dirty commies. And you look at the past few years since he's been in office, he's always backed that up. Um, and, and this goes for politicians with policies you would disagree with in George H.W. Bush's or I'm sorry, George W. Bush's um, promise to spread democracy. I guess his dad did the same thing. Um, you knew he meant it and you probably didn't like it. Many people, especially looking back at what happened in Iraq and uh, the Gulf War again in the early 90s. But you knew that he actually was going to follow up. If he said something, he was going to try to make it happen, even if it didn't. But when Biden's saying stuff, he's just saying nonsense. And he's been doing this. Uh, this is his third State of the Union. Always about the same. Um, but what was weird, again, he does this a lot. He started off congratulating Kevin McCarthy on being the speaker. And it was all about unity and bipartisanship. And look, we can all work together. And then he would just make these bizarre random attacks on Republicans, just like, oh, and by the way, the GOP is evil and everybody in the party. I really hate you. And that's why we need bipartisanship. It was just this weird, jarring thing. And he's done this a lot. Um, he kind of did this a bit in his famous um, Mordor speech that he gave in Philadelphia, which looked like he was uh, broadcasting from the pit of hell. Um, and he was just attacking Republicans. And then he was saying why we all need to unite. It was it's just kind of odd. So he made all sorts of uh, strange uh, claims in it. Um, he talked about the border very briefly and said, well, it's Congress's fault. It won't be fixed until Congress fixes it. It's like, wait, what? It's your job. You run Homeland Security. You run the Border Patrol. That's all an executive function. He accused Republicans of wanting to just basically end Social Security and, Med and Medicare. Uh, the crowd, especially, of course, the Republicans mocked and jeered him. There is a lot of this attack, personal attack of him while he's giving the speech. And then he would kind of give it back to the Republicans. It was just unpleasant from everybody. For those who um, are mortified, especially more progressive types, mortified that uh, people would be so rude as to interrupt a speech by Joe Biden. Come on. We all lived through Trump. We, we know how you treated Trump uh, throughout his four years uh, giving these speeches. It's just going to ramp up with each president. And that's why we need to go back to submitting the State of the Union in writing to Congress and get done with a silly charade. Um, I have not seen the ratings. I'm sure it was extremely low. Even people who voted for Biden aren't passionate about him. Um, they don't think it matters that he gave a speech, which is the correct analysis. I'm kind of paid to watch this kind of stuff. So I watched it and I was thinking, oh, I can write a big piece analyzing the speech. No, you can't because it <laughs> it's just meaningless. Yeah. Again, back to this mumble, whisper, scream thing. It, it's just What's really weird is he's yammering up there for an hour, 10, hour, 15 minutes, giving the speech that he's kind of talking like this and kind of mumbling about the infrastructure, in, infa, infrastructure, infrastructure. Uh, we need to get that up. To, and then who wants to be like President Xi? And it's just like, whoa, 
what is going on? He's like lulls you into this sleepy somnambulant. Okay, when is this thing going to be over? Mode, and then he just screams these random th- random things. Um, he was screaming at one moment, name me a world leader who would change places with Xi Jinping. And everybody watching saying, oh, and then he kept screaming, name one, name one. It's like, what is he talking about? There's a lot of leaders who would uh, trade positions with him. Um, and it's just weird. And, and OK, name me a world leader. I guess he's saying that Xi Jinping is in trouble, which, yeah, he, he's sitting on a powder keg in China. It was just weird. It's like, what are you trying to motivate in people? It doesn't make sense. They went through the usual people in the gallery. These are the heroes. And uh, this person is a sad story. And this is why we need to spend a bunch of money on A, B, or C. Uh, Again, with these State of the Union addresses, what drives me crazy is, and that's why you need to back this plan, which will cost $77 trillion. This is why you got to back this plan, which will cost $124 trillion billion. And this is why we need to spend more money on cops and prosecuting cops and also training them, but hating them. And uh, we got to spend 14 quadrillion on this. We have no money. We are over 31 trillion in debt. They just throw out these numbers like we need to spend X amount on this. We don't have money. I can't believe anybody's even, uh, I don't know, investing in the U.S., Treasury bonds and the like, let alone overseas investment. It's um, as much as Biden says it's bad to bet against America. uh, Our economy is pretty sad. And uh, if you trust the United States government to make up any kind of investments you make upon it or within it, uh, you are sadly deluded. Uh, This whole uh, debt bubble, we had the housing bubble collapse and. 2008. And our response to that was to borrow a lot more money and to print a lot more money. Yeah. When this debt bubble bursts, ah, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be ugly. And I think most people know that it's coming. Either Either the government just defaults on everything or some weird systemic glitch happens on, I don't know, in the Hong Kong market, it goes contagion and Everybody suffers uh, like we saw with the housing bubble. But when you have a debt bubble pop, there's no more money. You you can't just, oh, well, yeah, we'll pay this off and we'll uh, do some uh, monkey with the numbers a little bit. and It'll look like we're solving on the books. No, that's when the game is up and everybody knows it is over. He did and kind of transitioning into another thing, the ridiculous story with this big white balloon racist that was floating over uh, the entire continental United States and Joe Biden dithering on it and everybody giving contradictory answers about it. And we can't shoot it down over Montana because it'll apparently destroy the entire state. Uh, No, uh, Montana drive through Montana, go from the Dakotas all the way to Idaho and Washington state. It's a big state without a lot of people. It's beautiful. But yeah, there was no uh, threat to people. They could have taken this out at any point. Instead, they were terrified that there might be a situation in which um, this spy balloon might uh, monitor a fisherman off the coast of South Carolina. So that's when they took it down. The whole thing was just weird and weak. And uh, yeah, what what Biden said about this in his speeches. But make no mistake. He said that a lot. But make no mistake. As we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country. And we did. No, we didn't. 
everybody knows that thing was, was transmitting photos and whatever um, analysis that had as it floated across the entire country, floated over many military and nuclear installations. Um, it transmitted all that back to China. And after the fact, Joe Biden shoots a balloon down. It's a balloon. This is not uh, we're not talking high tech stealth fighter hypersonic bolts shot out of space. No, it's uh, pretty basic tech here, folks. They have this in the Civil War. So anyway, yeah, the balloon thing, it was just embarrassing. And then you had uh, people saying, oh, well, this happened many times under Trump. And a lot of reporters are saying, what do you mean? There's no record of this. Oh, well, we found out after he left office. Okay, well, hopefully that's the case, because the other option is the military found out there was Chinese balloons flying over the country and they decided to do nothing and never inform the president about it. None of Trump's officials ever heard anything about this. They were all confused. Like, what? What are you talking about? Mike Pompeo was a big one to do that, who was very involved in the national security space and diplomacy space. It's like none of them heard about it. So if they did identify these balloons during the Trump administration, decided to do nothing and afraid that Trump would do something crazy, they didn't tell him, well, that's a breakdown in our entire constitutional order. Uh, It is not their job to make these decisions. The military is under civilian control and the civilian is elected by the American people. Um, You might not be happy with Trump. I'm certainly not happy with Biden. I think he's going to make a lot of bad decisions, but it's still his constitutional job to uh, make the big calls on these things. There was another report um, that broke yesterday on Tuesday. Seymour Hirsch reported that, yes, here's the evidence. The U.S. um, U.S. military, they're the ones who took out the Nord Stream pipelines uh, carrying natural gas from Russia into Germany and the rest of Europe. It's the U.S. that did it. Well, we never have found out who actually did this. Seymour Hirsch has kind of done this uh, highly retweeted uh, post blaming it all on the U.S. I think it's very logical to assume that the U.S. did it. Uh, Why they did it, I'm not exactly sure. Um, It would make sense, I guess, since he's so erratic that Putin would do something like this. There was some analysis that Ukraine did. Uh, they're barely hanging on. I, I don't think they have these, uh, I don't know, the equivalent of a Navy SEAL team to do an operation like this far from their border. Um, but yeah, I think it's still up in the air. The problem with Seymour Hirsch is he was like an award-winning journalist for years. And then for the past 20, 30 years, he's just g- gone crazier and crazier. So he's not a reliable voice. He first got famous in like, gosh, 40, 50 years ago, 1969, uh, he um, revealed the Mylai massacre, which caused a big stir. I wasn't around much then paying attention to news, so I don't remember all the details, but it caused a big, um, big scandal. But he's not someone who has been taken seriously by anyone on either side, except kind of the Noam Chomskyites, uh, maybe the Alex Jones types. Um, On either side, those are the people who really believe this stuff. He said that Bush was planning on nuking Iran back when he was president, Bush Jr., and he blamed it on all the Jewish money from New York, which is weird because um, he's Jewish. But uh, yeah, so he's kind of an odd duck, let's say. So could it have happened? Of course. Uh, Do we have evidence? I'm not taking Seymour Hersh's word for it. It's just a weird. It doesn't seem... Bombing the pipelines didn't seem to greatly 
um, help either side in this. They had already shut it off. So that's why it was such an odd mystery. And I said as much when it first happened. I wanted to talk briefly about only because uh, people freaked out on Twitter at me and unfollowed me, and which was uh, later on way more people followed me. So I, I don't know what's going on. But I, I just mentioned that Trump did this thing on Truth Social. He's always attacking DeSantis now, just these dumb attacks that don't make a lot of sense. And he retweeted some guy with a joke name. I don't know. I know the first part of the uh, original sharer's name started with Dong. So, yeah, I, I don't think this is a a great eminent authority. Uh, excuse me for that. But he shared some old blurry picture of Ron DeSantis with three youngish girls like, I don't know, teenage or college, but it's blurry and it was hard to tell. And uh, Trump retweeted it and uh, alleged that DeSantis is a groomer. Uh, because he was in a picture with females in the same picture. It's just kind of weird, kind of odd, uh, to say the least. But it's weird because he keeps launching these attacks, attack after attack after attack. And DeSantis just isn't responding. He doesn't care. And uh, he was asked about it. DeSantis was asked about this on uh, this morning, Wednesday, after he gave a press conference about cutting taxes. And uh, people were like, do you have a response? Do you have a response? And once again, he wisely said, here's his quote, I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. And then he just moved on. Um, all the, the only point I made is when Trump makes these attacks, he's showing insecurity. Um, he is not launching these attacks at Larry Hogan. Why? Because he doesn't view Larry Hogan as a threat. Nobody does. Um, but instead, he's just constantly just kind of freaking out and throwing spaghetti against the wall to see if he can get anything to stick against DeSantis. I just said that makes you look weak. It's like he's intimidated by DeSantis and he's afraid of DeSantis. So he just is constantly, it's like he has Tourette's. He just needs to bash DeSantis all the time. Well, you endorse this dude. All right. And uh, yeah, I know the numbers aren't looking great in a few polls. Now DeSantis has actually pulled ahead of Trump among Republicans. I don't know if it's likely voters, registered voters or what, but a lot of the base in the GOP has kind of moved on, and it seems like Trump and his most passionate devotees are also freaking out about DeSantis. You're going to ruin everything. Um, yeah, well, if more Republicans want him than Trump, yeah, <laughs> he's going to ruin everything for Donald Trump. And I don't think people are uh, we're concerned about uh, the health of the country and good policies and actually winning elections, not Trump's feelings. Um, yeah, so. Anyway, uh, some people were very upset with me, but the attacks didn't exactly make sense. And so I just since I just tossed off a brief tweet, what I think of this is there's a famous scene. It's kind of turned into a meme on Mad Men when I don't even remember his name, but uh, kind of the enemy of Don Draper is with Don Draper on an elevator. Younger guy, up and coming guy who just doesn't have the, the stuff. That Don Draper has. And the younger guy says to him, he says, you know, sometimes I just feel I feel sorry for you to wish Don Draper doesn't look at him and says, I don't think about you at all. And uh, I always think that's the better play in politics It's just like, yeah, I'm so far above you. And even if it isn't true, even if you're down in the polls, just this attitude of, well, I'm obviously the best candidate, so I don't need to worry about anybody else. And, and usually this is the best strategy. Obviously, um, you need to change tack throughout the campaigns and choose your punches, find the openings, choose your punches very well. 
But you don't need to just be screaming about one other person. All you're doing is giving them attention. It makes people think about DeSantis. So if all Trump does is talk about Ron DeSantis, it makes people think a lot more of Ron DeSantis. This is a marketing principle, pretty basic. Pepsi, for a long time, used to talk about Coke in all their ads. They had this thing probably in the 70s or something called the Pepsi Challenge, a big marketing campaign. And they would put two unmarked glasses of cola in front of a a person sitting at a table and they would sip one and then they would sip the other and they would say, I prefer the first one. And they'd say, well, that's Pepsi. But they mentioned Coke in every single ad. The results of that campaign, sales for Pepsi went up. Sales for Coke went up by even more because they were talking about Coke in all their ads and showing this delicious brown sugary beverage being poured into a glass and fizzing and people enjoying a cola. People were like, oh, dang, I'm in the mood for a Coke. Uh, Yeah, don't constantly promote your opponent. All it's going to do is elevate them. So anyway, that's my little rant on that. For the last item, very important stuff. I can't even remember the last time I went to a theater to see a movie. A couple years ago. I remember seeing Black Panther at the theater. I don't know if I've seen anything since. It's been a long time. We had the COVID stuff, of course, but eh, I, I don't know. There's usually not much that I care to see at the theater. And if I something really looks good, it's like, yeah, I'll get to it when it hits streaming. Won't take too long. Well, AMC is dealing with, uh, they're losing money like crazy. People aren't going out to the movies. They have their big fancy TV sets at home. They got a lot more sedentary during the COVID lockdowns, etc. And uh, so AMC is really struggling to turn a profit. So they have come out with, they said they've already been testing it and they're going to be rolling it out nationwide at AMC theaters. You need to, if you want to sit in a middle seat fairly close, you'll need to pay more. It's kind of like uh, when I try to go to a concert these days, it's like, all right, um, 25 bucks in the balcony. If you're in the wings down low, 35. If you want to sit front and center, 75. Um, That's kind of how uh, a lot of, I don't know, live theater, opera, classical music, um, any kind of concerts, they operate that way. And now theaters are thinking AMC is thinking, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Um, Actors are lashing out against it. The first one was Elijah Wood, which I haven't thought of him in a long time. Lord of the Rings dude, Frodo. Um, A few other actors jumped in just saying this is stupid. Uh, The great thing about theaters is it's always been kind of a democratic thing. Everybody pays for a ticket. They pay the same price. They sit where they want. They all get in without having to have rich people in the fancy seats. The problem I see, yeah, all that's true. Um, The problem is, is twofold. First off, you're taking something away from customers they have grown used to since the era of their grandparents. Um, And you're saying, hey, we're taking this away. Isn't that great? No, (laughs) everybody's going to be mad at you. Um, Also, AMC theaters. uh, There's a lot of other theaters out there who won't be doing this. And so people will prefer those um, more traditional pricing schemes. The big problem with this is something that you see government do all the time. You would have times when the New York subway would be complaining, the subway authority, port authority. Are they the ones that handle the subways? I'm guessing. I don't know. We live in Phoenix. We don't have ports nor subways. But they'd say, wow, we're not hitting our budgets. Our revenue's dipping. We need to raise prices. Conservatives and anyone who has taken an economics uh, 101 course would say, Okay, if you're making less revenue, you got to lower the price to make it more attractive. And that way, a bunch of new writers will come in. Um, AMC is doing the government action of 
oh, we have fewer customers. Let's charge the few customers we do have. Let's charge them more. Uh, no, that's that's not going to get people into your theaters, especially when you have competition, something that the government does not have. So uh, not wise AMC. Now let's get to the song of the week. OK, instead of chasing a lot of new music lately, I've been going back into the dark recesses of the past, uh, mostly eh, kind of late 90s listening to a lot of Elephant Six. I think I put them as a song of the week a week or two ago. Yeah, just kind of going back to all these bands that I was really into back in the day, kind of moved on from Forget About, Forgot About for a long time. And uh, one of those bands, uh, there was a fan-made documentary, I don't know, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, about a band called Broadcast. I was like, oh yeah, I saw them live. Love that band. So I've been going back through and listening to a lot of their stuff they were around very late 90s, early 2000s, and then they had a female singer. It was mostly, um, I think they were husband and wife, at least they're in a relationship together. But I think a husband and wife, they were the main people. And they'd bring in other musicians, I think, for the first two albums or first three albums, they would have a full band. Then they're real studio junkies. So I'm sure the rest of the band is like, yeah, we actually will need to get out and play so we can make some coin. Uh, so their next couple albums were just those two, and they'd bring in musicians. But they were a very interesting band. They were really into the old analog synthesizers, sound effects, weird stuff going on, much like if you're into them in the 90s, Stereo Lab. They kind of pioneered this uh, broadcast, did their own take on it, kind of mixing 50s, 60s, crooner classics, torch songs, and weaving all these elements into this kind of eclectic mix of electronic and analog instruments. So they were very cool. Uh, this is from their third album called Ha Ha Sound. I've never understood that title, but the song is called Pendulum. had this uh, kind of um, 60s pop feel to it with like a female singer singing kind of monotone or light or slight uh, like you would see, I don't know, someone accompanying Frank Sinatra or something like that uh, within all this crazy weird stuff backing her up and uh, interfering, adding to the tension a little bit. But anyway, I've been listening to them nonstop for about a week and a half now. So I thought I would share that with you. Thanks again to Kate Rosenfield. Great to have her on. Buy everything she's ever written immediately. And uh, thanks to you for listening. We will be back next week with yet another guest and uh, even more of my sterling commentary. Thanks for listening. Ricochet. Join the conversation.